Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, June 2nd, 2023. It's been a publishing kind of week on Keenon this week. As so often, we began the week with a conversation with Hugh Howey. Um, he's an interesting character. He self-published his first book, um, and now he's a huge hit. Uh, he has the Silo series that's just been made into an Apple Plus um, television or online spectacle. And he's very much a futurist thinking, uh, as he discussed with me, that uh, same-day AI movies are just around the corner. And he still believes, however, in books. And then yesterday, or the day before yesterday, we did a show with David Blake, the founder of Book Club, another way of rethinking books, of imagining how we're connecting, how readers and authors are connecting and rethinking the very nature of books. It's all about innovation. Book industry might be like the Brazilian economy, always on the horizon, always offering potential, never coming through. But my guest today is another innovator, Stephen Games. He's the editor of Book Launch, uh, a very inno innovative um, uh, quarterly summarizing news based in the UK. Um, and he is also... Uh, he does podcasts, of course, and he's also uh, the editor a really intriguing new startup called Envelope Books, which is a way of combining the postcard and the book. And he's joining us from a sunny Muswell Hill. Stephen, um, tell me a little bit about your career. You're an unusual character. You've done a lot of different things. You've gone all the way from West Hampstead to Los Angeles and back to Muswell Hill, which is quite an achievement. Well, I started out not knowing what I wanted to do. And I've pursued that as a sort of <laughs> career During, ambition all the way through. Even, that that it, uh, seems to be a very distinctive thing of coming from Northwest London. You never quite know what you're going to do and you make it up as you go along. Yeah, but it's, it, you know, it's actually very important. It's, it's important to me. I, I believe uh, in groping one's way towards answers. I mean, for a large part of my career, I've been a designer and I'm very well aware of the fact that other people in the design industry, maybe under more commercial pressure than I've been, um, are required to find a solution right from very off. You find your solution and then you sell it to the client and then you merely enact it. And I've never done that. I think that uh, design solutions are something you need to live with. You need to chew them over. And very often, the right answer will come to you. You don't have to construct uh, artifice. There was a time when I used to be at the BBC. Uh, the BBC has a network called Radio 3, which is what used to be the intellectual network. It was sort of serious music and serious talk. And I was a documentary maker there. And in those days, before Margaret Thatcher and uh, the need for everything to be financially accountable... Uh, Radio 3 would send me out to make documentaries. And the wonderful thing about their approach was I would have virtually a free hand uh, to talk to people and look at subjects. And we very often didn't know what the documentaries that we were making were going to be until we came back 
very often go to the States. We go to the States twice a year for a couple of weeks. We meet as many people as we, as we needed. We come back with our tape recordings and then we'd listen to them in studio. And then we'd listen again and then we'd listen again. And gradually a story emerged and we would end up with the most remarkable things because it was only when you'd listened back to someone maybe three times, maybe four times, that you tuned in to something they were saying that you hadn't noticed the first time. And it was that intense observation, which was really only possible uh, in, in, in circumstances that circumstances that are really fantastically generous and, and uncommercial. Well, it was only when I you could do that you, that you could uh, come up with some yeah, sort of... I, I introduced you, uh, Stephen, as a, a futurist, and now you're going all nostalgic on me, going back to pre-Mrs. Thatcher UK, where everyone worked for the BBC and everyone had a blank check and you went with a free hand groping to Los Angeles. I, I mean, I don't want to do that. It's boring. It's, it's been said so many times before. And you know it's utterly unrealistic. For better or worse, not there is a bottom line. And uh, you need to make money. And you can still be very creative and not work for the BBC, can't you? That's not the... I'm not... Look, I'm not talking about how wonderful it was to work for the BBC. What I was talking about was the freedom to put one's agenda together after the process of observing but isn't Rather that what a than, book, that's what a creative person does, whether they're a writer, right. a painter, a musician, a, a jazz artist. I mean, that's, that's the right. nature of creativity. That's right. And that's what I feel I've had the ability to do for much of my life. Oh, and you know so, your, so your life is a kind of version of that, of putting stuff together creatively. Well, I, I wouldn't. If you're, if you're saying one needs to be commercial, yes. I mean, I don't suffer. I'm, you know, I, I own my house. Uh, you know, there's, there's food on the. Inexpensive Muswell You just told me that um, there's an opportunity for me to buy a five million pound house in Muswell Hill, which is quite a commercial opportunity. Well, okay. So my point is that I think it's often important just to go with the flow, and see what one can derive from it. I was never a publisher. I went into, I mean, I was a journalist. I worked for the BBC. I worked for The Guardian. I worked for the Independent newspaper, which came along in 1986. I was one of the first members of the, of the staff of The Independent. Um, but uh, so my, my experience of publishing is as a writer, not as a publisher. But about five years ago, I was able to do something I'd always wanted to do, which was start a magazine. And the magazine is called Book Launch. Yes, there it right. is, exactly. It's called Book Launch. And Book Launch filled a gap that hadn't been filled in the market, which was instead of reviewing new books as the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement do, a Book Launch carries extracts from new books, mostly, so that readers can see for themselves, read for themselves how a writer writes and assess the writing on the basis of the writer's own words rather than being handed a, uh, an opinion about the writer That's by kind a of what Lit Hub does. I mean, Lit Hub is, is full of extracts from, from writers. Yeah, well, we don't have that in this, we don't have that in the UK. So, book launch is now well, the we largest. We have the internet, books. Stephen. Everyone can get everything these days. Andrew, this is the, the point about this. The point about book launch was also to remind people of the joy of holding a book and turning its pages. And so, the magazine, which you've just put up on screen, though it exists in a digital form, 
its most enjoyable, uh, for me, its most enjoyable way of reading, of being read, is holding the printed copy. And we have a larger print run than any other books magazine in the UK. Mm. And, and, and actually, just... that was one of the things we discussed um, with David Blake, is mm. why and how the book has remained, the physical book has remained so viable, so resistant to change, and it's for perhaps its tactile quality, um, yeah. and for the fact that uh, online reading still is problematic on lots of fronts. I mean, I love it. I now I've discovered in the last couple of years that if you read in bed, reading on your iPhone backlit, you don't have to switch the light on. And it's a much simpler thing. It keeps track of how many pages you read, how many pages you've still got to go. But the point about book launch was trying to pull itself out of what I thought when I started it five years ago was becoming a really unpleasant commercial market. But the only thing that publishers want is to is to sell through whatever else they might be doing online and to gather data. And you know what? As I said, we have a digital version of this fabulous magazine. And I don't gather data. I don't try to sell. It's not commercial. It's there as a resource for those people who can't get hold of the right. It's like, uh, I mean, there's certainly a market for that. It's like the... The quarterly uh, liberties, which uh, we've done a number of interviews with with contributors, mm. people still love books. So, so tell me a little bit more about book launch. How many um, how many um, copies do you publish or sell or distribute? Yeah, we we've got a print run of fifty one thousand. Wow, and is that and mostly people paying for it? No, we, that's not our distribution model. Our distribution model is much is much more interesting. We go out free to every subscriber of two, the two main British political weekly magazines, The New Statesman and The Spectator. And we're quarterly. So every three months, you get a copy of Book Launch with your copy of either The Spectator or So your Statesman. business partner, so they're paying you as a value-enhanced... No, thing. no. Who's paying who we're, for that? How are you making paid, your money? We're, we're paid by the publishers who take space in the magazine... And then we're paid by advertisers on the back page of the magazine. You know, there is a page of advertising. So, you know, the model is a fairly conventional one. We we sell you space. You give us money. But what I'm able to provide is a readership of 50,000 compared with, say, the London Review of Books, which has a global print run of 89,000, only 41,000 in the UK. The Literary Review, which is just touching 40,000. And the poor old Times Literary Supplement, which has managed to climb up from 21, 22,000 before COVID up to about 25 or 26 uh, now. But, but there a is very a difference thin. that you're, I mean, these are still more traditional publications. You're saying yes, that publishers pay you to be in the quarterly. So how do you yep. determine who gets in and who doesn't? Who pays the most? I have to like the book. Okay. <laughs> so I if have you to like don't the book, like the book it doesn't it. matter what people pay you. No, that's not the issue. The issue is to pitch the magazine at the sort of level that I want it to be pitched at. And, uh, you know, some people come along and offer uh, and want to buy space. And I say, well, I really don't think that your book would be dead down well. Uh, Stephen, isn't there? I mean, you're comparing yourself with the, I don't know, the London Review books. People choose to subscribe. Yours just goes out because yeah. whoever's yes. subscribing to right. the New Statesman gets it on a quarterly basis. Yeah. Anyway, so let's move on. That's so that's right. an interesting model. Let's move on 
to uh, envelope books. Tell me a little bit more about well, that. It's it's a it's Andrew. It's it's a great model because it provides those who do advertise it with us with a, an absolutely dead cert audience of people who really like reading and you know and are aware of the world. You mean this is book launch um, or envelope books? I'm talking about book launch, and I'm talking about our, our, our being able to reach the subscribers of the New Statesman and the Spectator. But as a subscriber it, of something, you you subscribe to the Spectator, not to book launch. So do people really want it? That's right. I assume they do. Otherwise, well, I have it. It works. It's working. It works for me, and it also works for Envelope Books because what started happening. This is how Envelope Books came along. Is that. Um, readers would contact book launch and say i have a book i i don't know how to get published i i've done everything i can think of doing to get published i can't find an agent and i can't find a publisher can you advise and after about a year of trying to help because i like to be helpful um i thought well you know what we can do this ourselves and um i just have a constant throughput of of offers from our readers, so I know that it's working. So uh, as a kind of publisher, I guess myself, I get pitched all the time, people, with new books, just like you did. Mm. And one criteria I use is I'm always a little ambivalent about people who self-publish or with what I would call vanity presses. Are are you a vanity press? How How do you decide what gets published on envelope books or not? No, Envelope Books is a conventional publisher. We try to get onto the bookshelves of shops. Um, we, um, we, we, you know, we, here, look, here is an example. I don't know whether you can see that. If you fl- flash back to me, I'm holding, right. So here's Envelope Books. All the covers look like envelopes, but inside they're, you know, conventional books. And this you can yeah. find on the shelf of your bookshop. And that Africa book uh, actually not- was, if, if I had to choose the one that I would buy or read, from browsing through Postmark Africa. It's the one I also flashed up. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's great. Well, that was our very first book. And that was written by, that's the collected journalism on Africa by the by a former Africa editor of the Financial Times, um, lovely chap called Michael Holman, who also actually had one of the first um, operations, he's got Parkinson's, had one of the first deep brain wow. Uh, electrode operations to to deal with his Parkinson's. Um, so those are all kind of conventional books. What we also do when, because any number, I mean, you'll know this as well, any number of people come to us to say, uh, you know, I want to write my memoirs. I want to make them available. I want to give them to the family and friends and so on. So you think, right, well, this is a book in that case, which is going to have a readership of 50, 100, 200. And for them, we have another imprint called Postcard Books. Yeah. And that, those books, I mean, again, you can buy, we print physical copies, but those will go up on Amazon and anybody who wants to buy those. Yeah, and, and as you say on your postcard involved. book section of your website, what is a short book but a postcard from a writer to a reader? And postcards, of course, are yeah. again a, a sort of nostalgia. So that, that is vanity publishing, yeah. essentially. People are paying so you that to is put for... the stuff together to distribute to their friends. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to knock it as bad. Well, as I, that. I'm not knocking it. I'm, I mean, it's, it's, it's just people who want to have their stuff out there. That's not a bad thing. Yes. Yeah, and and the um, you know, and they deserve to, and they deserve to be helped because the publishing industry is so very 
competitive and unpleasant. And if there's something that we can do to help someone get their book out and they feel good about it, they've got 100 copies that they can sell in Amazon, that pleases me a lot. What we do, unlike, and there are a lot of, and this is another reason why I set up Envelope, there are a lot of cutthroat publishers out there who will take a lot of money from innocents who are too naive to know how they're being ripped off and they will not give them a good product. They won't copy edit properly. They won't edit properly. They won't edit. Okay, so I take your point. I mean, everyone claims to to be honest. What what do you do? I mean, how much does it cost and what's the process? If I came to you wanting a, a postcard book, the process, the most important process is, one, we actually read the book. Two, sorry, I don't mean to number it. That sounds ridiculous. We read the book. Then we get into a conversation with the writer about what they want to do and how well they have expressed themselves. And if they express themselves well, like this one here. I mean, this is uh, Jane Reed's book, Nell Nora Jane. It's about her childhood up to the, the, the outbreak of the Second World War. She writes, she is elderly and she writes, she comes from a time when everyone wrote perfectly because they, you know, they were taught to read, to write well at school. So there weren't many problems with her. Nonetheless, you have to go through the copy editing process and then you typeset and then you lay out the book on the page and then you proofread to make sure that no glitches have come up and you design the cover and you print out the book. Now that is, you would have thought, was the bottom line default process that most publishers uh, abide by. It isn't. It isn't. Is it because there are, publishing, uh, I mean, you're knocking the traditional publishing industry. Is it because... No, I'm not knocking greedy? the... Well, I'm you not, are. You're saying that you, they don't get what you give. I'm, I mean, not knocking the, I'm, I'm not knocking the traditional publishing industry. I'm knocking exactly what you're talking about, that, that cadre of publishers who came along to satisfy the vanity publishing market. The self-publishing, um, yeah. Let me correct. Yeah. The self-publishing industry. Yeah, and you know what? And you know what? When they publish a book, it ends up looking like a student thesis. It's always, it, it, it's always, it invariably comes out in 12 point times New Roman spaced with line spacing between the paragraphs. It, everything about it says this has been self-published. And it's a, it's a disgrace how many companies like that have got rich from... from are there really? particular ones in mind? It's, it's Scribner. I mean, I, you, you hear a lot of the names. Are there ones I, that... I'm not going to... No, of course, I'm not going to put myself on the line by naming any of the firms that do that. But I have people coming to me all the time saying, I have been, <laughs> I have been offered this service or I have already paid for yeah. thousands and thousands of pounds from the service and I'm really sorry. Now so, I've got another... So what, what would it... I mean, for, for, for our viewers and listeners who are interested yeah. maybe in self-publishing whatever you want to call yeah. it with postmark yeah. uh, postmark yeah. books what what does it cost well typically between two and two and a half thousand pounds so what would that be in dollars well depending on the exchange rate about three three and a half thousand dollars and what would you get no not as much no not as much as three and a half i would say up to three okay well what would you get for that would you get a number of copies no, what you get is the whole production process. The copies cost nothing. I mean, the, the copy is buying copy from Amazon. That's not the point. The point is paying for copy editors who can charge anything from 15 to 30 pounds per thousand words and proofreaders who charge anything from 10 to 15 pounds a thousand words and your beautiful and your beautiful cover design. Here is a, a, a diplomat we, we did this cover for. 
and uh, and all of this clever stuff on the on on the back. So um, and that is a very competitive rate, you know, for the level of editorial intervention which you get there, and for the quality of product at the end. It's a staggering. Well, what you're rate. doing then is essentially bringing together the quality of traditional publishing with enabling people who, for one reason or other, can't get published by mainstream publishing with the same tools, the same quality yes. editing and printing and design. It, we're, bringing, we're bringing conscientiousness, yes, to that process. And I really think it's important. And How it's many of you of these uh, postmark books are you doing a year? Um, four, five, six, something like that. We've only been in business for two years, Andrew. So it's really quite a time-consuming process. Yeah, it's a very time-consuming process. And, and in terms I mean, of envelope books, but the core is still as a more of a traditional publisher, finding quality work yes. yes. one reason or other hasn't been published elsewhere. Yes. And there's, I mean, there's good word of mouth also. You know, someone brings a book out and they say to their friend, you know, Stephen Games Envelope Books will do a good job. Try, try him out. So I've got stuff coming all the time. Let's go uh, back. So, uh, I began talking about Hugh Howey. He had great self-confidence in self-publishing his first book, and he's gone on to sell millions of copies, make mm. millions of dollars. Um, what advice would you give a young writer who has confidence in their work? Uh, should they go the Hugh Howey envelope books or postcard books self-publishing route and then build commercial relationships with more traditional publishers? as Howie has done? Well, it's hard for me to know. I mean, if you can get yourself a contract with uh, one of the Penguin Random House publishers, um, that will stand you in very good stead for a very simple reason. They are very well established. They have international uh, uh, coverage. The name is well known. I mean, Penguin owns, I think, 273 different imprints. So... <laughs> Um, they have a, di a, a, a sophisticated distribution system. Uh, they have their rights system set up. So, of course, that's going to be very clever if you if you can get in. The difference uh, between that and us, I mean, and we have an immediate problem. We've only been publishing books for two years. We're very, very new. We've only been available in the United States since March of this year. We're only going to be available around the world um, from next week um, because we've just signed a big deal with a world um, sales team and distributor. So we're very new. And that means we're working at a huge handicap because we are fighting what is effectively a, 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 a cartel, a monopoly. If you were the books editor on the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever, you've got your friends, you've got your established network, you know the contacts from the, the marketing, divi marketing division of, of Simon & Schuster or, who, or Penguin or Random House or whoever it is. You know those people. And we come along knocking and say, look, we've got this wonderful new book of short stories by Yanina David. Could you review them? And um, half the time we don't get any... Does it even matter, though? I mean, the, the business is changing so dramatically. Whether or not you get reviews in the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times, I mean, the big hits now are often self-published, distributed online. And so, so does even does that That's right. traditional That's critical infrastructure matter anymore, Stephen? Uh, it's great for PR. <laughs> I mean, in um, in a few months' time, 
we're going to be republishing a book by Michael Goldfarb. I don't know whether you know the name. Yeah, Michael I do know. I mean, I don't know him personally. I know his work. Right. So he, he was a reporter with National Public Radio for many years and covered the Second uh, Gulf War. His um, contact in Iraq was um, uh, uh, an Iraqi Kurd, a man called uh, Ahmad, Ahmad Shalkat. And Ahmad was a publisher. He was a newspaper publisher and an intellectual. And he helped to show Michael around while he was covering, covering the Second Gulf War. He survived. And then the Americans sort of pulled out. And with six, within six months, Ahmad had been assassinated. Mm. The book is called Ahmad's War, Ahmad's Peace. He survived the war. He didn't survive the peace. And we bring that book out. And that came out originally, I think, in 2005, 2006. And the first page is just a list of the great and the good in conventional newspapers and magazines saying what a great book this is. It's lovely to be able to open that. And it gives the reader a lot of reassurance when they flick through the pages of the book in a bookshop and they see that. You know, if I say our book has been seen 25,000 times or whatever on TikTok, you know, um, it, it, it's important and it's, it's the way we're going. But it doesn't, ca- it doesn't have the same cachet. Stephen, you, you uh, found an interesting interview with you about five things you need to know to become a great author. I don't want five things. Just give me one thing. And what exactly is a great author? I don't know. I mean, I said in that interview, there are people who've set out to be great authors. And I think it doesn't work. And rather in the same way as I say, you know, let life take its course, flow, go with the flow. We'll find out in 50 years who the great authors were. Just do what you do as well as you can do it. Um, and you will be helped by, I mean, one of the great books that I'd, I'd like to publish um, is about the editing process. We, it's, it's, it's the untold story of publishing, isn't it? We don't know who comes to a publishing house and then gets shaped, reshaped, manipulated, helped by an editor. Uh, but it's a very, very important process. I myself am a very, very interventionist editor. And texts come to me and I say, that can't go out. You, that, that, that is not well phrased or you haven't thought the thought through or you're not allowing the thought to express itself properly. And we, you know, we work on a text and we stretch it. And I always feel that my sort of book publishing, it's a bit like Hollywood in the sense that the writer produces the thing. And then there's the, 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 the production team. And they work, you know, the script writing, the, 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 the editorial team, and they tear a book apart. They tear a script apart and they work out what's best about it, what will work and what needs to be dropped. And it's a very, very painful process for writers. Screenwriters are more, screenwriters are brought up to expect it. They know that they're going to have their, their script shredded. I'm not saying that we always shred, but I mean, we grant ourselves that freedom because it's probably going to do a writer good if the writer hasn't quite come in at the right level. Right. A couple of final questions, Stephen, and, and, and you're on the front lines of this stuff. We talked to Howie about same-day AI movies. AI is flavor of the month, of the year, of the decade out here in Silicon Valley. Mm. How do you see AI changing the editorial process? Are you a, a skeptic of some of these more... 
dramatic and, and sometimes dark visions of how AI is going to change everything, make all of us, particularly writers and editors, redundant? I'm worried about the next generation, um, the, the young kids who, who will only have grown up with it, because I don't know that they'll have the right questions to ask. When I'm bored, I have conversations with uh, chat GPT, and they're extremely instructive, and I'm slowly learning the things that chat GPT can't do. Number one, it can't write poetry. It can vaguely rhyme, but it has absolutely no idea how to scan. But that's partly because most people who write rubbish poetry these days don't scan, don't know how to scan either, even when they try. The other thing that chat GPT can't do is admit that it doesn't know something. And I've been asking it questions over the last week. I say, tell me a funny but true story about Martin Amis after he died. And ChatGPT will tell me a funny story about Martin Amis, about something that he said at a, at a literary conference. And if you then go back and say, is that a true story? It will say, no, actually, I fabricated it. And I said, but I asked you to tell me a true story. And it says, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I must apologize. I hadn't quite realized. And then you ask the same question again, and it does the same thing again. So ChatGPT is dishonest, does not know the difference between truth and falsehood and thinks that an apology is a simple way out it's absolutely sounds like most people though Stephen. aren't we all a bit like that most of us are very bad at apologizing or acknowledging that well we we might apologize but acknowledging we were wrong maybe that's a reflection of the ai's founders well in america people are people struggle to acknowledge they're wrong Okay, well, I just expected more of the cleverest brain so that's ever been you're, invented. You're, you're disappointed then with ChatGPT. Um, Stephen Marsh, it, who's been on the show as an AI expert, as a writer, very credible writer too, the Canadian-based novelist, um, he thinks that the future is is partnering, writers and editors partnering with AI. Do you think that's true? Do you think you'll be able to yep. leverage yep. these these platforms, these systems, these algorithms at Envelope Books? I, I, I already do to some extent. I mean, if I'm writing, uh, if I'm writing something, I always now ask ChatGPT a question to see uh, what answer it gives, and then if I think there's something useful that it said that I haven't added, uh, uh, haven't uh, uh, absorbed, I take it in. But now I've discovered that I have to be much more rigorous with ChatGPT's answers than I had realised to begin with, because it is likely, and I found this now time and time again, it is likely to tell me something that it thinks I want to know, irrespective of whether that's true. Well, let's end, Stephen, with you telling me something that you think I don't want to know. Be um, unchat GPT-like. Remind everyone of the value of, of, of human beings, smart human beings like Stephen Games. Well, I don't know. I... Um... I'm, I'm not the most uh, competitive person here, like I say. My, I didn't come to this world to be fantastically commercial. I do think that it's important to provide a service for people who just can't get the, through the barriers of agency and publishing. And uh, you know, if there's something we can do and it, we, we end up by producing a book that makes the audience say, wow, glad this exists, well, then I'm, I'm very, very happy. Maybe, Stephen, we should agree we should just get rid of agents. They're the biggest problem of all, aren't they? The gatekeepers... The gatekeepers, but they're, they're worse than gatekeepers. You know, you go to an agent's website and uh, it says, please don't ask. You know, we're full. We're not accepting sub- uh, 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 entries, not accepting submissions. Just go away. And envelope books, you know, I say to people, 
we'll give you an I'll give you a first answer in 24 hours. You know, there's 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 a line of communication. Right, there. The envelope is open with envelope. The envelope is open. That's what we're pushing. 